it's Mercedes. Welcome back to another episode of the West Block podcast. Today we'll talk about COVID-19 in the courts with Justice Minister David Lametti. What does the pandemic mean for justice in Canada? Canada's top science advisor, Mona Niemer, made her West Block debut earlier this week in an exclusive interview on her advice to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government about how they should get us through this second wave of the pandemic. We'll play some of that in just a couple of minutes, but you can find the full interview if you want to hear it in a special bonus episode out this week of the West Walks podcast. It's International Day of the Girl. It might be 2020, but women are still facing serious challenges in Canada and globally. We'll talk to Rana Ambrose about that and her thoughts on the U.S. election, Trump's latest trade threats, and the Justin Trudeau-Doug Ford bromance. We'll certainly have a lot to cover today, so let's get to it. All of our lives have changed drastically due to COVID-19, whether it's going to work, grocery shopping, or seeing loved ones. Coronavirus has fundamentally changed the way we do things, and the courts are no exception to that. Joining me now to talk about this is Justice Minister and Attorney General of Canada, David Lametti. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving, Minister. And same to you. It's a pleasure to be here. Sir, there are so many unintended consequences and effects of COVID-19, and one of those has been delays on the court system. Can you walk us through what effect COVID-19 has had on the courts from your perspective? Well, the, the, the effects have been multiple uh, in terms of the way a court can hear when it's an in-person session. Uh, if there's a jury trial, how do you space the jury? How do you impanel the jury in a safe way? Uh, how do you make sure that everybody who walks into that court building from uh, participants in the, in the process, so the parties to a case, to the lawyers, to the judges, to the support staff, you have to make sure that the whole thing is functioning uh, in a safe uh, manner that, that protects people inside from uh, having the from getting the virus from the propagation of the virus so all of that is is in play um, and then there's the impact that it has on the case that itself uh, initially the courts slowed down uh, or stopped in some cases depending on the courts across Canada uh, and and so there have been uh, there have been delays we have been working from the beginning um, with my provincial and territorial counterparts uh, and ministers of justice, but also with the courts. I co-chair a committee with the Chief Justice of Canada, Richard Wagner, and we have been working with other chief justices and other uh, judicial administrators across Canada to make sure that the courts can function. How far behind schedule do you think we are, and, and when might the courts be back to functioning, I wouldn't say normally, but at least trying to get through this backlog? Well, the courts are all functioning uh, right now. They slowed, but they picked it back up again. Uh, so it's 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 pretty much impossible uh, to determine a, a, an actual date, and it, and it varied across Canada from court to court. Uh, but they are functioning, including jury trials uh, in most places. Um, we'll see with this uh, with this second wave what the impact will be on things like jury trials. But but the courts are functioning. They are doing. Uh, certain procedures via video conference. They're doing certain procedures via telephone. Um, they're always trying to ensure that uh, that everyone in the system, whether they be uh, uh, the accused or whether they be uh, victims or, or, or others who've been 
really negatively impacted by crime, that, that their needs are being met. Uh, I'm impressed by the way uh, our justice system has reacted. I'm impressed by the way our, our judges and magistrates as administrators uh, have reacted uh, to this uh, pandemic. There is a decision by the Supreme Court that's well known as the Jordan decision, and it basically said people have a right to a trial within what would be considered a reasonable amount of time. Are you seeing a lot of challenges due to delayed trials, delayed court proceedings under the Jordan decision that could see very serious charges like murder being thrown out? Well, it's important to underline that within the Jordan decision itself, there is a, a, a provision made for exceptional circumstances. Uh, I think by any, any definition that, or any interpretation that one could have of the Jordan decision, this pandemic is an exceptional circumstance and therefore is a factor that a court uh, has to weigh when assessing uh, the question of unreasonable delay. So, so far, the, the situation we feel is under control. We're watching it very carefully watching it with my provincial and territorial counterparts as well as with uh, as with uh, the judges uh, who are administering the court system across Canada, chief justices across Canada. So far we're watching. Uh, we are in constant uh, communication uh, with uh, people administering the court system um, and for the time being uh, we're satisfied that things are, are moving are moving well uh, but we'll continue uh, and we'll act uh, if necessary we'll act immediately should you start that legislation now so that it's ready to go well, as I said, the, the exceptional circumstances provision is within uh, is is uh, framed within the Jordan uh, decision itself, uh, and so far, uh, courts and and counsel and all participants in the system are taking that that uh, principle seriously. Uh, this is an exceptional circumstance, and and we're confident that it will be factored into decision making. Minister, I wanted to ask you about something remarkable that we've seen over the past few weeks, and that seems to be a shift when it comes to dealing uh, with Canadians who fought for ISIS or the children of those Canadians. In particular, we have finally seen two people who are alleged to have supported and fought with ISIS overseas charged here in Canada. For years, we heard from prosecutors in the RCMP they couldn't lay charges because they just couldn't get enough evidence. Has something changed now in the way that the law is applied so you're able to actually prosecute people who are facing these allegations or have you been able to somehow access this evidence? Well, look, let me begin by saying that we, we take uh, terrorism charges very seriously. We take the question of uh, foreign travelers or travelers who travel for, for terrorist purposes very seriously. And we acknowledge that the, the challenge of getting battlefield evidence. Within our prosecution service, um, we have prosecutors who are dedicated to prosecuting terrorism charges. Uh, and so we, we have taken it seriously uh, from the get-go. I don't think there's been a change in that regard. Um, but there are, there are questions of evidence, and we leave it up to our prosecutors and our police investigators, our police investigators working with our allies to gather that evidence, and we leave it up to our prosecutors uh, to assess when they have uh, when they have enough evidence to move forward with these kinds of charges, and that's clearly what they've done here. 
Uh, at the beginning of last week, uh, a little girl was brought home from Syria. She was a Canadian citizen, uh, the child of two individuals who were fighting for ISIS. She was orphaned, uh, brought back out of Syria and into Iraq by Canadian Special Operations Forces. There's been a big debate about bringing home, in particular, the children uh, of those who were fighting. Is this the beginning of a change there as well, Minister, where we might see more people coming home, or if we're now able to charge ISIS fighters, seeing some of those ISIS fighters in the Kurdish camps being brought home as well? Well, look, this was a fairly unique situation uh, that required a, a compassionate response. And I'm really proud uh, of the fact that our government did respond compassionately. And I would thank all the special forces and Canadian Armed Forces uh, and, and other, uh, other uh, uh, Canadian administrators uh, and, and officials who made this happen. This was, a, this was a, a, a young girl who lost her whole family and had family in Canada, and the family in Canada wanted to bring her back uh, so, that, so that they could raise her. So again, a fairly, um, uh, fairly unique set of circumstances. Uh, if, if children are there with their parents, uh, at, at, then, then that is a decision that, that's been made in that family. Uh, and so it, it's a completely different set of circumstances. Um, and we had the opportunity to repatriate uh, this young girl uh, safely and securely. So I, I think it's fair to say that this was a, a fairly unique set of circumstances. On COVID-19, as we see the case numbers ramping back up across Canada, uh, I think back to the spring when we saw provinces essentially set up their own borders and start preventing interprovincial travel. Are you at all concerned about that as the Justice Minister and the Attorney General in terms of the precedent that it sets constitutionally to allow provinces to determine their own boundaries and borders and who can come in and out? Well, look, I've sat on that on the COVID committee uh, as uh, Justice Minister and Attorney General from the beginning. Uh, so I've participated in all of all of those decisions uh, from the beginning. That's certainly a situation that we're monitoring. Obviously, there are uh, rights to movement uh, guaranteed by the Canadian Charter. But that being said, this is a pandemic uh, and there are there are certain measures um, that that might be tolerated in a pandemic uh, temporarily uh, in order to help fight the disease. So we will uh, for fight the virus. So we'll continue to monitor that situation uh, and uh, as we move forward. One last question. You have assisted dying legislation that has to be passed by December that will expand those who qualify uh, for assisted dying. This, of course, came as a result of a court challenge in Quebec. Are you confident that you can meet that deadline, sir? Yes, I think I think we can. There's a widespread consensus across Canada. We 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 we. Uh, held consultations across Canada with experts, with people who've gone through the process, with, with made service providers, um, as well as with Canadians online. Over 300,000 people participated. There, are, there is a widespread uh, consensus for the, the modifications that we're proposing. And I would call on all parliament, parliamentarians in both houses of parliament, but across all the aisles uh, to work together to get this to the finish line uh, so that uh, we get this uh, legislation passed by the 18th of December. Minister Lametti, thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful long weekend. Pleasure to be here. Happy Thanksgiving to all of your viewers. Hey, it's Mercedes. And on behalf of our entire team here at the West Block, thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We'll get to the next segment in just a few moments, but if you enjoyed this week's episode, 
please leave us a review, give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and of course, tell your friends. Welcome back to the West Block Podcast. The second wave of COVID-19 is rolling across Canada, and with it, it's bringing back many of the restrictions that we initially saw in the spring, none of which anyone is too excited about. But on this Thanksgiving weekend, Canadians were asked to keep their contacts low and stay home. It took politicians a while to make their requests clear. And it's not the first time we've seen conflicting or changing advice in this pandemic leading to confusion. This week, we spoke with Canada's chief science advisor, Dr. Mona Niemer, about what we know and what we don't know about COVID-19. We also asked her thoughts on the science behind the government's plan to plank the curve, as they say. So, as promised, here's a bit of that interview now. Dr. Niemer, thank you so much for making time for us today. I know you're incredibly busy on all these different COVID committees. A lot of Canadians today are looking at the rising case numbers, and and as they look at them, 2,000 a day or more, and we prepare for the second wave, what do you think the second wave is going to look like? What are you hearing from scientists about what we should expect? Well, you know, the second wave is going to look what we are going to make it uh, look like, meaning through our actions and uh, and what we do, because I think that we have everything in hand uh, to make sure that the second wave is actually uh, smaller uh, and uh, shorter than uh, than the first wave. It's a matter of uh, following public health uh, guidance. Uh, you know, it's uh, small inconveniences in terms of wearing masks, uh, keeping physical distances. But if we do that, then we don't have to continue the preoccupying trend that we're seeing in the past few days. What happens if people don't listen to that public health advice, if they continue to gather? I mean, it's Thanksgiving weekend, lots of people wanting to get together with friends and family. What are the consequences potentially of that? Well, look, we just need to look around uh, the world uh, in places where they they, they had uh, the first and second waves. And uh, it's just going to keep uh, keep going up and we're going to be in uh, back in lockdown and uh, nobody nobody wants that. So I really uh, urge everyone to please make those small sacrifices uh, so that we can continue at least to be able to uh, see each other's and uh, um, you know, not be locked down and uh, unable to uh, have a minimum of, uh, you know, socializing. How far out do you think a vaccine is then? And how realistic is that as a solution for a life to go back as we knew it pre-pandemic? Well, well there are a few vaccines that have uh, have gone through the, the, the early clinical phases that assess their safety and their uh, efficacy at generating an immune response. So we know that that happens, that we have vaccines that are safe and we have vaccines that are able to generate in healthy individuals an immune response. I think what we're still waiting to find out is whether vaccination is going to prevent infection or is going to prevent severe disease in infected individuals. So the, the, the timelines for this uh, you know, is the coming two months. And uh, I think a number of, uh, of uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, have published actually the protocols of their uh, more advanced uh, clinical trials. So we should have an answer by the end of the year, whether we have an effective vaccines against the infection or not. And then after that, I think the, you know, vaccination 
will be able to start as early as uh, the beginning of uh, uh, 2021. This is a government that has repeatedly said, the, the Trudeau government federally, that they listen to scientists and they make evidence-based policy. Has your experience been that the prime minister and his government are making policy decisions based on the evidence and based on the science? Well, you know, I can tell you that for, you know, the things that uh, that uh, we have provided uh, advice on, uh, I am, uh, I am, uh, uh, very satisfied that uh, they are listening to the science and that you know as as it evolves as well um i think it's uh, it's also important to realize that uh, uh, you know there are uh, shared responsibilities between many levels of governments in terms of the of the uh, of the of the pandemic and i say this not to you know put blame on on anybody but it's it's just that there is so much you know, one level of government can do. And I think that this is a situation where everybody needs to work together and uh, to listen to, this, to, to the science, but, uh, but also to, uh, you know, there are trade-offs. Science is not an absolute. There are trade-offs. And the trade-offs very much depend on, uh, you know, um, local, regional um, considerations as well. What are your thoughts on the role of China in all of this? Because there's been a debate. Uh, the WHO even has now said that the Chinese were not as forthcoming as they should have been with the information and with the data. You, know, you were there. You were receiving that intelligence. Do you think that China was transparent about what was going on and the potential severity of this virus? You know, look, it's it's difficult to answer the question because, you know, at, at one point we, st we started certainly hearing about the cases, they sequenced the virus, they made the sequence available. Now the question is, did, you know, was this happening for like a month before they talked about it? Uh, you know, it's something that I really can't can comment on um, because I, I, I simply don't know. Is there still any risk of our healthcare system being overwhelmed by COVID in this second wave? It's possible. Uh, uh, you know what what hospitals are uh, in, in in certain uh, regions are uh, you know at uh, above hundred percent capacity in the in uh, in emergency in emergency rooms uh, already with the non uh, COVID uh, cases. Um, what we did you know previously is we. Uh, we stopped a, a lot of uh, a lot of care that is non-COVID, and we have waiting lists that we need to go through because, uh, you know, while we're getting uh, while COVID is uh, with us, uh, unfortunately, other diseases are as well, uh, and we can't just like put them on on pause. So uh, there is a, a possibility that if we have to deal with huge cases of uh, of, uh, of COVID-19 that we will overwhelm uh, the system. And I would hate for this to happen, you know, in, in Canada and to have to uh, put people again on waiting lists who need cancer treatment and who need, you know, cardiac surgery. Dr. Niemer, thank you so much for your time and expertise today. We truly appreciate your insight. Thank you very much. Don't forget, you can catch the full interview from that in a special bonus episode wherever you listen to the West Block Podcast. 
COVID-19 has been a challenge for every Canadian, but research shows that the pandemic may be hitting women and girls particularly hard. On this International Day of the Girl, we are joined by former interim Conservative leader Rana Ambrose, who has just released a children's book telling the story of experiences of girls all around the world. It's great to speak to you again. Thanks for coming on, Ms. Ambrose. Thanks for having me and happy International Day of the Girl. You too. I, this is a very interesting book. Tell me what's in it and what led you to write it. Sure. Well, I was involved in leading the charge to create the International Day of the Girl at the UN. Really was about a group of girls who approached me and used their voice to champion this idea. So we worked together to get it done. And nine years later, it's a global movement. A lot of great things have come of it. But I felt really strongly that we needed some more practical tools to work with kids to teach equality. And this book is about nine girls in nine different countries that are dealing with issues in their own parts of the world. And they overcome those challenges with their creativity and their smarts and their fearlessness. Um, and at the end of the day, it's really about making sure that girls know their rights at a very young age so that as they grow up, they're more willing to exercise them. And uh, the book is available on Amazon chapters and proceeds go to Plan Canada, which is a charity that does work to enhance children's rights and girls equality around the world. So it's a practical tool to really spend some time with your kids to talk about what it means to be equal. When you talk about what it means to be equal, one of your biggest legacies, I think, uh, here on Parliament Hill was the introduction of legislation that required judges to be educated when it comes to sexual assault. Do you think that there have been changes in the justice system and on Parliament Hill? Uh, are women making progress? I think we are making progress. Uh, I, there were, I've spent a lot of time advocating for that bill. The bill has been reintroduced again by the Justice Minister of Canada in the last couple of weeks. It is in Parliament and I expect that it will pass. Third time a charm. Uh, but because of that, that advocacy, we do have now uh, at least tra comprehensive training in place for judges. It's not mandatory and it's not for all of them, but it is available and that's a big step forward. We also saw PEI introduce a similar bill and Saskatchewan also move on it. And we hope other provinces will come on board. My hope is that at some point we have a lot more faith in our justice system for survivors of sexual assault. Uh, you probably know the numbers, Mercedes. One in three women in Canada will experience some sort of sexual violence, but one in ten, only one in ten will report it, and they'll say it's because they have no faith in the court system. Uh, and so we need to create that faith, and we need more women to be able to feel comfortable coming forward to tell their story and to seek justice. And so that's what the bill is about, is making sure that those people right at the top um, are the ones that know the law best and that are going to uh, manage their courtrooms in a way that we don't see the kind of language we've seen in the past, like telling a girl to keep her legs together. Um, you know, why didn't she keep her knees together when she was raped? Uh, and, you know, really putting a lot on the victims. So let's hope it passes. This is the third time it's been through the House of Commons. Ms. Ambrose, you're also a former Minister of Health. When you're looking at what's happening right now as large parts of the country are going back into partial shutdowns, rising COVID numbers, what are your thoughts on, on what the government needs to do to get through this? 
Well, I mean, a lot, I think at the federal level, we need to support people economically, and that has happened. Now, of course, we're all worried about the amount of spending going out the door. The spending is necessary. At some point, we have to see past this COVID uh, emergency and what comes next, and we have to think about that bottom line and the debt that we are collecting. On the other hand, it's provinces that deal with provincial, deal with healthcare. I think what provinces, the provinces that have got it right are the ones that have really raised their testing capacity, have really brought on a lot of testing uh, in the last six months since COVID hit. And provinces that haven't been able to do that are really suffering, and, and that's too bad. And I hope that we can see more testing ramp up. Look, we can't keep kids in school. We can't send people back to the workplace. We can't keep daycares open if we don't have a good testing regime. And waiting in line for eight hours is not a good testing regime. You're out in Alberta, and there's certainly been some tension between Premier Jason Kenney and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, we learned on Friday there's some money coming for infrastructure for Alberta, but there's been no sectoral support for oil and gas. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, I mean, it's really tough to see because, look, it's great to have infrastructure funding. We'll take all the support we need. But, I mean, just last week, another 2,000 Albertans lost their jobs. We have over 100,000 people out of work with no, uh, you know, no work in sight. Because, you know, the, the issues that we're dealing with here are not just uh, the fact that we're, we're dealing with low oil prices because of the pandemic hitting and, and the demand going down, but we're also dealing with policies coming out of the federal government that are very, very hurtful to the oil and gas sector. And at the end of the day, uh, the industry will be the first ones to put up their hand and say, look, we want to be climate leaders. We are investing multi-millions of dollars to be better climate leaders. We want to make sure that we're part of a strategy to reduce emissions. But the government has got to work with industry to make this happen. They've got to work hand in hand. They can't just announce one day that they're, you know, they're bringing in place uh, another carbon tax, which is the what the clean fuel standard basically is, without consulting with industry. I mean, this is one of the largest, uh, you know, one of the largest contributors to our GDP in the country. Huge amount of jobs come out of the oil and gas sector directly or indirectly. And what I would say to the government is that you've got a willing partner in industry that wants to be climate leaders. So let's work together. Let's not have surprises uh, and, and let's not create an atmosphere that's combative um, and, and lacks trust. Let's work together uh, because I think there is actually a common agenda here that we can find. Ms. Ambrose, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Thanks, Mercedes. That's it for the West Block podcast this week. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. With that, and on behalf of the entire team here, thanks for listening. Have a great Thanksgiving, and take care.